0: what's going on asymmetry well back in the house with andrew robson after our thoroughly engaging initial conversation about rakuyo In and his creation of a facility that's going to i think have a tremendous amount of impact and positive uh, impact at that in terms of deciduous bonsai cultivation and appreciation, and we had kind of left that conversation open with a standing date to return to flowering and fruiting bonsai cultivation. Finally, we got to circle back to that, and uh, the conversation does not disappoint. Uh, Andrew's been making huge strides with Rakuyo in and setting up his facility. And, um, it was great to catch up with him and, uh, and get to have this conversation and just, just on a more somber note, but I think something that needs to be said in the intro, um, recent times in the Pacific Northwest and fires having had a significant impact directly on our bonsai community, Chris and Lisa Kirk and their, um, Facility manager Roxy lost their facility to the Oregon wildfires. There is a GoFundMe campaign to support Chris and Lisa and Roxy in their recovery efforts, and uh, you know anything can help. But if you have a spare moment, check it out. Without further ado, uh, Andrew Robson, flowering, fruiting bonsai, and a whole lot more. Uh, enjoy. How's that? That's probably good. Nice, nice. Is this your guys' podcast studio?
1: Yeah, this is Michael's living room. Awesome. So we have a map of the world behind us and a few CDs. And
0: there you go. About it. That's that's kind of what you need, though,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) How's the how's the new podcast going? Are you guys enjoying it? Yeah, it's it's really fun. Um, I mean, we're we realized that we were basically having these conversations anyway, Mm -hmm. and so just to be able to put them out as content has been. You know, pretty nice
0: yeah that's so. very cool yeah i mean it kind of it's like when you when you do want to have a conversation because there's so much that's spoken about regarding bone bonsai between individuals you know for whatever any number of random reasons and it's like well there's not many people there's not a lot of high level discussions about bonsai that are publicly had
1: right right it all happens behind closed doors so totally it's, it's, it's fun to be able to put it out there a little bit of a fly so. on, fly on the wall kind of a vibe
0: i think with Boneside, L- less than like yeah. uh the bigger podcasts where it's like they're talking about
1: grander subject matter right sure yeah yeah so yeah, yeah it's 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 been fun um i was wondering we're, we're getting about a thousand views per episode is that kind of where i was kind of wondering what what you're at Yeah. Um, Just to realize what the market is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I would say we're, I would say we're probably, I would say we're probably triple or quadruple that.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good to know that there's, there's people out there listening.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, I think there's more than a thousand for sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 that's off the top of my head. I would have to ask you. It's a little bit hard to track down podcast behavior.
1: Yeah, it's it's really strange. Uh-huh. Um, I, I haven't found any good answers for that. Right, we were so. just actually, right before
0: we started, we were just having that conversation of like, nobody really knows, right? Like, yeah, because um, I don't know who hosts your, we go through Podbean
1: with ours. We're- yeah, and we're doing Buzzsprout. Sprout. And that's okay. kind of nice because it tells you how long they listen to each episode. Uh huh. So you can get a gist if like they're only listening the first ten minutes or if they're listening to the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. So that's yeah. been nice.
0: Yeah, to be able to I we we had talked about at one point maybe doing like a more highly produced podcast, but um I don't I don't know that bone size ever gonna be I don't know that bone size ever gonna be a a a broad enough audience listening to a
1: podcast that it makes sense to put the resources into it. Yeah. Meaning like non bonsai people listening to the bonsai podcast. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Like I think we had, we've had some moments when, um, lime had a timbers soccer player up here and that pulled in okay. like the timbers army kind of like wanted to listen yeah yeah you know like sure. we've, we've had those those uh glitzes of like out outside audiences but i don't know how many yeah. people stick around because sure, sure. does get pretty hardcore bonsai yeah 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 but sure. uh how, how are you doing uh through pandemic fires freaking all the craziness you doing all right
1: yeah, it's it's been a little crazy. We're we're fine here in the city. We just deal with the smoke, mm-hmm. um, but it's kind of heartbreaking to see what's going on in the countryside. Yeah, uh, with the kirk's, you know, losing their place, and um, yeah, it, it's just kind of crazy to see what's happening. Yeah, uh, throughout the state. Uh, uh, how's Mariah? I know you guys are up in a rural area.
0: I think that um, we are holding our breath because yeah. um, I mean, I'm pretty I'm pretty well aware that if if any of this caught fire, the surrounding forest is is pretty close. I mean, it's in contact with some of the structures, which yeah. is probably not not necessarily smart. Um, yeah, and and it's like a difficult balance for me up here because the we are up on a hill, and so the trees give us a lot of shelter from the wind. Sure, uh, which is why which is why sort of the selective cutting that I did do when I started Marai was mm-hmm. was not more aggressive as i did want to make that shelter and it's it's served us very well but um but it's a huge fire hazard so i'm just holding my yeah. breath that somebody doesn't do something stupid um in yeah. the surround you know in the surrounding vicinity at this point in time
1: right right yeah that's the the worry for sure um have you noticed that the trees are just like completely shut down totally that's, shut down that's our down. experience Yeah, I'm watering trees that I was watering twice a day. I'm watering them every three or four days at this point. It's exactly crazy.
0: And I don't know. Um, I don't know what the response I've had. Um, We've had a lot of people via Mirai Live ask the question of what happens with this kind of smoke with a tree. And it's like, yeah, boy, I do not know. I mean, I know there's a lot of scarification requirements with seeds that are met uh, for some trees with the chemical interaction with smoke.
1: But yeah, I, and that seems to be. I've I've been looking recently. That seems to be where all the research is. is is about seeds and how the fires affect that. There's very little pieces of research about how this affects living trees. Yeah, um, and of course, nothing about bonsai. <laughs> right, um, which could be entirely different. But yeah, it's 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 crazy to see how shut down the trees are. They're just not. You know, doing anything during the smoke?
0: Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, I mean, water. Well, I, I think too. I just got back because I drove the covered wagon to New York last week, yeah. so I got back on Sunday. So I was all of this stuff that's been happening. I've just been hearing about it on phone calls with Troy yeah. or Kaufman or yeah. um, you know other bonsai people, and 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 then I I flew from like beautiful sunny las vegas nevada crystal clear blue skies into the apocalypse and it was pretty, yeah. it was pretty
1: abrupt and pretty jarring yeah i was surprised you got in i heard airlines are starting to cancel flights into portland yeah mm-hmm. i got
0: in when the air quality index was like five fifteen or something i mean like That's super nuts. hazardous That's and they're canceling yeah. them now that the air quality index is actually far better so i yeah. don't i don't really know what happened there i'm not quite sure but i'm glad i got home
1: that's that's great. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, it's it's a crazy time for sure in Oregon. Yeah, um, but I know without the sun, and we experienced this when the when the gorge when the Columbia River gorge burned okay. uh, a few years back we were in the middle of a, a heat spell where we were supposed to, one day we were supposed to hit 106 or 107 when that fire yep. was burning. And just the, the, oh, okay. So the sheer quantity of smoke cut the intensity of the sun. And I don't even know if we broke 100 that day. But um, the same thing kind of feels like it's happening now because even when I was talking with Troy, when I was you know driving across the country, I was saying, are you um, having to water a lot it says it's supposed to be 90 and he's like 90. It's not even going to break 70.
1: Yeah. And yeah. It was, it's been like 55, 60, 65, yeah. something like that this whole time. It's, it's kind of scary. I've, I've seen deciduous trees go into dormancy. Mm-hmm. You starting the dormancy cascade, starting to turn color. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of crazy. I'm sure the trees have no idea what's going on.
0: Oh, I'm sure they're just like, yeah. what the hell? I mean, all of the landscape yeah. around Mariah is starting and the big leaf maples in the native environment uh, along yeah. highway 30 are all starting to go into some of them, full fall color right now, full peak yeah. yellow fall color. Yeah, it's crazy. What is it? Mid September. It's it's kind of nuts. It is nuts. It is nuts. I think some of that is drought too. Uh, yeah,
1: to a degree. Yeah, it's it's been pretty dry. This mm. is the summer.
0: Now, are so. you um, are you are you working on your garden through all of this? Have you been building? What's going on with that?
1: Yeah. Um, so Rakuyo is is kind of under construction at the moment. Um, the house is, has been the main focus okay. um, and I'm a little reluctant to do too much in the, in the garden until the house is kind of done and all the crews have, have kind of stopped moving in. Uh, but the house, all the drywall is up. Uh, the siding is going on literally this week. Wow. Um, and, and so once, once some of that starts to calm down, uh, then the, the crews will come in build a fence, lay the gravel, and then I'll be able to start building the garden. So wow. probably around the 1st of November, I'll be able to start getting in there and, and putting up some infrastructure. That happened uh, fast. Yeah, it, we broke ground. I think the the fourth week of April. Wow. And so we're like two thirds done. It's it's <laughs> been a crazy ride, but it's 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 really coming along. So I, I, I can't wait to get in there and get started. I'm going to focus on the greenhouse. Um, winter is coming, so I, I got to get the, the greenhouse up and get get trees you know protected, and then I'll you know throughout the winter I'll kind of casually put up benches and kind of get a feel for the place and mm-hmm. and really start setting up. And, and, and making it a, a, a nice garden
0: yeah what are you doing for a greenhouse are you are you going uh, a prefab piece or uh, what kind of shape are you looking at what is how are you yeah. making those decisions
1: yeah i think i'm going to do a semi gable uh-huh. um 24 by 24 feet uh i have a somewhat small property i mean, I mean it's really big for the city it's it's a, almost uh, 0.4 acres uh so it's really big for the city but but kind of small um for, for a bonsai artist so it'll be nice because i'll be able to have you know as many trees as i can work on you know just myself there um so i, I need a greenhouse that's somewhat sizable but i don't need something you know massive mm-hmm. um so so i'm doing a 24 by 24 foot semi gable greenhouse i'm just doing a kit for this first one but mm-hmm. there'll probably be some that go up in the the future that are a little bit more uh permanent yeah um, but yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. I'm I'm trying to get it ordered, but I think they were in rural Oregon where all the fires were. Oh, so it's no so I, I haven't heard from them in a week or two. Oh
0: so. yeah, man. What we'll a see. what a devastating blow. And you went up to you were up at Telperion.
1: Yeah, I, I went up to help uh rescue some trees. Uh I had a few attempts driving there, couldn't get in. Uh, but finally, I was able to get in uh, with the Kirks and and the Finsels, who are good friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were able to save a few things, but it, it's we're still trying to figure out what's what the status is there. Uh, they had several trees come down on that road within the last week, and the National Guard's kind of there blocking people, so it's it's kind of nuts. We we can't even really get in and get a good good status update. So, yeah, we, we were there for we were there for 25 minutes before we got a call from the sheriff saying the fire was coming back. We need to get out.
0: Oh, so you're it was, serious? It was kind of
1: nuts. Yeah, it was it was nuts. That's crazy. Yeah,
0: yeah uh yeah. C- Chris Chris had left a voicemail on my phone as I was driving across the country, so I listened to it and mm-hmm. and it was like uh fire burned down Telperian house is gone, everything's gone. Yeah. Uh there's trees up here, we can't water them, they're going to die. Come up and get them. And so I called yeah. Troy and uh, I said, "Hey, this is happening, but Mariah, it was hot when that happened it was going to be 90 the next day so Troy can't sure leave so uh he talked to Kaufman and Kaufman's like I'll go you know and then mm-hmm. I'm like and then I'm like uh man is the fire still is it still dangerous is that obviously the air quality is not going to be good and and yeah Kaufman rented a U-Haul and drove down there and didn't he said he didn't see a single individual on the road like there was uh, nobody stopping him nothing and I was, was I was in Pennsylvania, uh, dropping off trees at a student's house and I got a FaceTime call from Kaufman and he's standing at Telperion just showing me the carnage. And this is, yeah. this is the morning after it burned. Uh, yeah. but I think he was able to load up 17 or 18
1: trees is all he yeah. could fit. And, and that yeah, was, that's about, that's about what we got. But yeah. Yeah. It was, it was just nuts. And I think there's still trees there in the ground, but the irrig- irrigation systems appeared to all burn up. And- uh-huh. So we'll, we'll we'll see what happens. We're we're hoping to go back, you know, next week once the smoke clears and and they open up the roadblocks.
0: Yeah. Is that yeah. so? Um. As far as like trees in the ground and stuff, are they going to try to are they are are you thinking that you'll be digging those out to salvage them or what's the plan?
1: Yeah, I don't think there is a plan. I think just get in there, see what see what's, what's going happening. on, and then yeah, try and save what we can. Damn. So. Damn. Yeah, it's 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 totally nuts. In um, speaking of Teparian, we should we should m- mention there's two GoFundMe campaigns yep. happening right now. One for the Kirks, which is is been hugely successful and they're getting a lot of support. And then there's another one for Roxy, who's who's the the fore, foreman, the, the caretaker of the water. Um, and that one needs a little bit of a boost. So if anyone's listening, you know, go go support Roxy. She she kind of needs needs our help. She lost everything in the fire. She was in a rental home, but yeah, completely burnt down. Everything she had, you know, just gone. Yeah
0: so yeah yeah we talked it's about crazy. it on, we talked about it on mariah live too and uh yeah that's great yeah i tried to tried to use social media to promote that it's 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 pretty encouraging the Boneside community's response though like uh yeah they,
1: they really put it in, into gear and yeah and and, and get out there and support it's it's really encouraging to see
0: yeah yeah it is encouraging community is strong and i think yeah. everybody generally you know sees something like this and you you put yourself in in somebody else's shoes and it's like wow i would i uh, it would feel good to know that people have your back so it's it's yeah. pretty cool yeah. but man somber tones uh it's part of the reality <laughs> of this year though 2020
1: jeez yeah, hell of a year. Monster, it's, monster <laughs> and, year. And then right now the, the southeast is just getting beat up by a hurricane and it's, I don't know, it's just yeah, crazier. It's nice to have the bonsai where you can just kind of forget all this craziness and, <laughs> and, and just like go spend time with your trees. People have been home a lot more and, and that's been really encouraging working with students and clients who are who are home who can water, you know, yep. not just everything before they go into work, but you know, water everything correctly. And, yeah. And, Really monitor things. So that's been really encouraging to hear that people are Uh, close, a little bit closer to their trees, which is great. I've
0: had uh, I've had more students say that, you know, like obviously they wouldn't choose to be quarantined or or, uh, necessarily working from home. But they've said because they've been in that position that their trees are healthier than they've ever been. You know, just with the attention they could give them, and it's a as a as bonsai professionals, that's our job to be with our trees. But but you can imagine how much awareness that this is kind of granted people, at least in the practice of bonsai, being with their trees every day. Yeah, it's
1: it's such a gift for for a lot of people Mm -hmm. that I've that I've heard from. Yeah, so that's that's been really fun. So,
0: but we started a conversation uh about broadleaf trees in general last time and and we had kind of like gone pretty deep but recognized that there was more there was opportunity there was still for more a lot more to talk about there's yep. a lot more and and, a lot more. and and I think the flowering and fruiting genre of broadleaf trees is under discussed I think it's highly appreciated mm-hmm. uh in, in yep. certain in certain to to a certain degree uh, by maybe the broader public more than the bonsai community itself being attracted yeah. to that ornamental, um, you know, aesthetic, but it's also something that I don't have a real in-depth knowledge of, and I would love to, to pick your brain and really mull over some of the questions about flowering and fruiting uh, species that we utilize in bonsai. Are you interested?
1: Yeah, yeah. Let's let's dive in. Okay, I, I think it's it's a really fun topic, and it's there's there's a lot there. Um, especially because I think each of these trees is so different. It's it's really hard to generalize uh, how you get a Chinese quince. The fruit might be, you know, totally different than, um, than, than an ume or, mm-hmm. or, or, or something like that. And so they're, you know, these trees are so nuanced and, and individualized that it's, it, 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 they're, they're a really fun group of plants, but they're really challenging in, mm-hmm. in many ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, and so you know, uh, seasonally appropriate, I think, in terms of the question, but there is a, a kind of a, a historic reference to 01010 10, both as a broadleaf fall fertilizer strategy as well as a potential uh, inducer or supporter of the flowering and fruiting behavior in these varieties. And I was just curious, what do you think about that and, and, and how do you handle your own uh, trees over this season and that, that notion of fall fertilization?
1: Yeah, I definitely use nitrogen in the fall mm-hmm. um, for everything. Um, I, uh, Michael Hagedorn in his, his book, Bones of Heresy, talks about the 01010 ten and, and how that um, kind of idea came about. Um, but um, it's I, I was talking to Gary Wood a couple of years ago, and he told me that nitrogen is the most essential element for every single cellular process of a plant. Um, fruiting, flowering, just growth, everything. So nitrogen is the key component by tenfold. It's also the most ephemeral um, of all the elements. It's going to disappear the fastest. So when plants are building buds or building fruit, um, all of those things they need a lot of nitrogen for that that system to work. And so I think the 01010 uh, is just not a very effective uh, tool to use in in uh, fall fertilizing. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I've I've always uh, used a lot of nitrogen, um, or, or maybe not a lot, but just you know the regular amount. Yeah. The, the, Full you know, fertilization season. Um, I don't change up my fertilizer. I just change up how f- frequent I'm using it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but all of my f- fruiting and flowering trees have done pretty well with with using nitrogen in the fall.
0: Interesting, yeah. And and I know talking with Joe Harris when I had asked him about because this whole question came about primarily with not inducing. Significant, uh, or or the potential, not facilitating the potential for deciduous, and mainly, I think Joe was speaking to the to Japanese maples, with uh yeah. you know we 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 can have warm spells later in the fall, and um, yeah. he had hinted that you know nitrogen combined with a warm spell can can induce a Japanese maple to push growth. I don't know if there's really any validity to that or not.
1: Yeah, I I haven't seen that at all. I <laughs> I think the science tells us that trees are reading daylight. Um, or, and they're reading temperature, mm-hmm. uh, but they're not really reading nitrogen for when to go into dormancy. Uh, and so all of the studies that I've seen totally bust that myth. yeah, um and Michael covers that in bullseye heresy as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is why it's a good read. Um, but um, it's important to note a lot of the buds for flowering trees are actually set up in the summer, not the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, uh is 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 one of them um, where, where they're, they're setting their buds, uh, in the summertime. And so if you're, you're starting to fertilize in the fall, it's too late. Um, if, if you want to get a really good butt set on those early flowering trees, then you gotta, you gotta get in there early, um, summertime, even late spring to, mm-hmm. to start fertilizing once the leaves harden off to build strong buds for next year.
0: Do you have any fear of summer fertilization? Obviously we're spoiled in the Pacific Northwest because we don't typically yeah. deal with the kind of temperature extremes that say the Southeast would experience, sure. but I'm curious, like, do you, any reference to that or feelings about that?
1: Yeah. If, if, if it's a tree that I want to fertilize, meaning it's not like, I'm not trying to restrict, you know, needle length or or leaf size or anything like that. If it's a tree that I want to fertilize, I'm going to fertilize it if it's below 90 degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, and same thing for for the cold if it's above 40 degrees and I'm going to fertilize it as well. So I'll fertilize here until Thanksgiving maybe even first or second week of December uh, with real mild fertilizer um, But as long as the temperatures are kind of consistently above 40 degrees, then the trees are capable of, of taking the nutrients out of the soil they're doing it much slower than when they're they're growing but you know, the, the studies that I've seen say the roots can absorb Uh, these elements above 40 degrees. And so that's where it it can be beneficial to fertilize.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The measurable uh, 42 degrees Fahrenheit, measurable metabolic activity, at least from the crude instruments that we have in in horticultural and physiological science. But yeah, it's it's an interesting thing too, when you think about nutrition in the colder uh, moments, because especially when you need microbial activity like dry fertilizers. And I know last time that we had talked, you had talked about the transition at Michael's place from dry pelletized fertilizers to the more fish emulsion and more liquid, uh, Mm -hmm. application, um, which, which we've also played a a lot around a lot with at Mirai for the past two years and have seen uh, a lot of different differences in terms of plant behavior, et cetera. But, um, but that, that temperature does seem to impact the availability of resources when we go into those dry fertilizers, and that's where I think if you wanted to continue, and, and this is just speaking and thinking out loud, I haven't actually considered this myself, but thinking about if you wanted to squeeze in some last nutritional moments in those cooler periods, that, that, that really is where liquid, liquid could be quite beneficial, I would think
1: yeah yeah, that's that's what I love to use it for. Mm-hmm. um i'll I'll use solids in the spring and the fall, mm-hmm. um, or on young plants, you know, in Anderson Flats, something like that. but but, I love doing liquids uh, in, in the, the early spring, late winter when when it's it's really hard to get solid into the to the
0: system that makes a lot of sense. That makes a whole lot of sense. and 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 so, you know, kind of moving into the fall season, obviously, this is the moment where trees are adding a tremendous amount of their, of their wood or their girth or their mass in terms of productivity. And with deciduous trees or broadleaf trees in general, this, that can be quite counterproductive. I would think.
1: Yeah. Counterproductive
0: meaning. uh, If you're trying uh, to get finer twigs and you're fertilizing aggressively, you can destroy a finer twig. I would think, but I, but I'm curious. I'm asking, not saying. I'm not, I'm yeah, not telling. Yeah. This is a question.
1: Yeah, I've found that fall is the most important time for refined, deciduous plants mm-hmm. for fertilizing. So you, you fertilize in the fall. You build really strong buds. And then in the spring, you fertilize very minimally as those buds are growing. Um, so you, 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 if it's a really refined plant and you're not doing something like defoliating it, you're letting it extend. Um, you have it in full sun, so your, your, your nodes and your leaves are small. Um, you wait for those to harden off, and then you can be infertilizing again. but mm-hmm. but the fall is, I, I think the most important time for a refined deciduous plants to really build up good buds for next year. Mm-hmm. And then once they start growing again, you you really might restrict it if it if it has a lot of ramification. yeah, that's but, but I've also I, yeah. I've also found that really, really refined deciduous plants, I, they're they're really challenging to take care of in, in terms of in terms of keeping all of that fine twigging um we're trying to force these deciduous plants to have you know 10 20 30 times more branches per square you know foot than than they normally would uh and so i I found that you have to fertilize an old refined tree way more than you would ever expect Mm -hmm. um i'm fertilizing my old refined deciduous plants as much as my young plants that i'm trying to grow chunks on so it's it's the plants like in between the the Plants where I have a trunk, I have maybe primary branching, but I'm starting to get fine twigging that I fertilize very minimally. Minimally, But the really old plants that have a lot of fine twigging, if I'm not fertilizing pretty aggressively most of the year, then I find that that twigging can, can die off. Interesting.
0: Yeah, really interesting. It, it's interesting, and in, and in when we talked with Dennis the the second time around uh, on the podcast, he had said, you know, I really don't fertilize in the fall, and that was the first time that I had ever heard anybody um, anybody say that. And, mm-hmm. and 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 I had seen Mr. Kamura take several different approaches with the deciduous trees that he was working with um, either reducing the leaf surface area or or, or or applying I would say a more minimal fall fertilization strategy compared to the conifers and whatnot and it and it and it seems as though there are multiple ways but it's really I hear what you're saying and that makes a lot of sense an older tree a more highly, ramified tree. If you're not feeding that system, then you're going to suffer a loss of that system.
1: Yeah. And once you start suffering that loss, it's a cascade that's really hard to turn around from. Mm. you got to get the tree in the box. You're, You're five years away from a show at that point trying to regain youthfulness and, and, and trying to sustain and rebuild the ramification that you that you have and that you lost. How, um how realistic is it
0: to sustain a deciduous tree with just a high degree of super fine ramification for a prolonged it, period of time? It's
1: hard. It's really, really hard. I I think if you look at the deciduous masters in Japan, they're keeping their old deciduous plants in boxes when they're not going to the shows. So if you look at Ebihara, you look at Oishi, they're they're keeping their some of their best trees in boxes um when when they're not being shown it's it's kind of strange to see this super highly perfect tree ebihara uh, has a really nice old zalkova um and it lives in a box when it's it's not in in show season hmm. um and so if you look at a lot of the nurseries in Japan uh from what i've been able to tell is they they're keeping a lot of these old plants in boxes um and that seems to keep a much stronger plant. That's been my experience uh, here in Portland. Whenever I, I get an old deciduous plant uh, and it's a lot of the plants I get are starting to lose a lot of that ramification. I get them in a box and that seems to help them get strong, but I'm not sure they're as sustainable as an old conifer. I think you can have an old shimpaku or, or a pine in a, in a pot and, and it will keep a lot of ramification quite easily. That's, that's been my experience, but with old deciduous plants, they, they just don't seem to be as stable.
0: And what, what, what is the, so, you know, I'm, I, I'm automatically thinking like, are we talking like a, a thin wood box, a thick wood box? What's the benefit of the box? Like, tell, talk to me about, is this a bigger box than the pot it would exist in? Is it the same size, but it's a box, not a ceramic? What, what is the benefit of this? How is this working to, to help yeah, I think.
1: The box, the, the benefit, there's a few, um, you get the added benefit of the corners. So, so most of these, which would be in oval pots, you have that extra, you know, little bit of you know, soil in the corner. So that, that helps. Um, the box has a lot better drainage. So your wet dry exchange is going to be faster. And I'm not sure what the magic is there, but when plants dry out and can be hydrated more quickly, um, the growth is a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, and for example, Isley Nursery. We were just talking about Joe Harris. So at Isley Nursery, they have they grow millions and millions of plants. Um, they take a one inch uh, little seedling and they put it in a two in a two inch pot, and then they put it in a three inch pot and in a four inch pot, and then a six inch pot. And you know they're repotting these things, you know, maybe multiple times a year. But that's a lot of labor when you're doing these by the hundreds of thousands. And the reason that they're doing this is that those plants will grow faster and it ends up being worth all the the labor that that takes. So I, I think there's some magic behind if you can get a plant to dry out more quickly, then you're able to hydrate it, then you get faster, better growth. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I, this is, um, so we coming out of the compost extract experiment we did last year that, that was not very successful this year. We mm-hmm. had some plants that suffered and, to tilt them up on an angle and get that rapid water removal after watering and allow them to dry out quicker means even sicker trees, we were able to water more frequently. But that, but that exchange. And so then I started doing exactly what you're talking about. It's a a lot of, a lot of labor to do it. But on some trees that I was trying to get a more robust uh, back butting in, I was uh, watering them thoroughly, letting the water saturate, percolate out as per, Mm -hmm. you know, the column. And then I would tilt them up and pull Uh out all of that excess and let them sit there tilted up until the next time that I watered it. And it was a really interesting experiment this year just to see how radically different that altered the behavior of the trees, that that did exchange.
1: To, did they seem to recover more quickly? Oh, most definitely.
0: Yeah, and I, okay. I mean, this is like, anytime at Mr. Cremura's facility, f- f- I'm, and literally... Even when a tree had a significant pest infestation, he would lean on tilting the pot up and changing the rapidity of the water exchange as just mm-hmm. an initial step. you know, then we would sure. you know treat whatever the issue was, but that was always the first step towards yeah. improving the tree's ability to grow in a healthy fashion. And sure. it, it makes total sense. I mean, up potting trees, you know, in, in that sequential fashion was, has been a horticultural standard for a very long time in the nursery industry, but, but there it's, I'm glad that you put words to the reason for the practice, because I'm sure a lot of people didn't quite understand. And as a beginning bonsai practitioner, you think I have a small tree, I put it in a big pot, it grows to a big tree. And that's actually not the case.
1: Right, right. It's, it's that, that wet dry exchange that, that seems to hold all of the magic for, for plant growth. Yeah. Um, and so back to boxes, uh, if you look at the one, uh, I mean, there's many commonalities, but if you look at one of the stark commonalities between people like Ebihara, people like Oishi, um, some of the, the real high-end deciduous growers who are able to take an air layer and, and grow it in 25 years, and it's in the Show winning an award. Um, the, the commonality between all of them is that they're using boxes. Hmm. So, so it, let's say you know you have an air layer, you, you plant it in a box. Um, and in 25 years, it goes into the Kokofu show. So during that 25 years that that tree is in the box for 23, 24 years, and then it goes into a pot and goes in the show. Mm-hmm. But the, the, they're, they're getting really, really rapid growth in these boxes. Most of them are on the ground, which if you talk to Randy Knight, you know, whenever he collects a tree, he gets it on the ground because that earth, he is, is so important. It just gives you a little leg up. Uh, but that can make a big difference, especially if you're talking 20 years. Uh, so so they grow them on the ground in boxes uh, to really kind of expedite the growth yeah um, and so that seems to be the the, the magic and whenever you get things in a pot it's it's really putting the brakes on yeah uh, and so that can that can be a little challenging to deal with
0: yeah that's it, it is fascinating i think we're so um, i think we're so young in our bonsai approach in north america and i also think you know, it's, it's interesting to see when Japan opens opened its doors to more Western apprentices was mm-hmm. already at a point in time where they had done a lot of the uh, sort of cursory work on their trees. A lot of the Yamadori transition, like one thing that I'm becoming extremely aware of is that the Yamadori transition from collection to establishment is... And, and I had sort of an ink it's, it's a whole art in itself it's right? an art in itself and there uh, and it's a long arc it's a very yeah. long narrative arc you're talking I'm now you know in the 10th year at Mirai seeing Yamadori trees um that came out of collection where I'm just now seeing the behavior stabilize from uh you know a, a perception of um, you know like on pines seeing the behavior stabilized seeing the the bark continuing to shed off of areas that died as a result of the roots that were cut in the collection process 10 years ago and I'm just seeing it now or seeing vascular growth on a limber pine that um, since collection has been in decline but has has, has been alive you know, it's like and suddenly boom something happens stability happens live veins are defined resources are no longer being wasted whatever all of those transitions are. I'm just more aware now than ever before how freaking long it takes for that to happen, yeah. you know yeah. and so it 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 is something where um Japan in a, in the modern era when we as Westerners were maybe maybe it became more accessible for us to study in Japan, we're mm-hmm. seeing it at a point where where we hadn't seen all of that pain uh, or, or that long narrative arc for these trees. We were there when it was all done 30 years ago.
1: Right. You know? Yeah.
0: And it's like, oh, this is bonsai. Like, let's get in, let's kick some ass, let's style some trees. And, and that's just not the way it looks when you're dealing with, uh, and, and, you know, to tie this to what you're speaking of, this is, would be another long narrative arc of the deciduous model, it seems.
1: Yeah and also with deciduous too is is you know they had 400 years if not more of seedling selections to find the nice japanese maple with the good bark with the the small leaves and the the good potential for for bonsai. Right. Uh, uh at Fuyuen talks about you know waiting his whole career to find the perfect uh, trident maple. Um, and so it's you know they they've had you know hundreds of years to really fine tune their, their practice. And we're just kind of at the beginning yep. with, with, with what we're doing, yeah. which is exciting. It's, it's, it's fun to, to be at the start of it, but it's also kind of challenging <laughs> in many ways.
0: It's, you know, what it is, I think is it's a lot of like optimism and like, you know, yeah, we're doing it. And then five years later, you're like, God, no matter what I do, this is never going to be as good as yeah. it could, yeah. you know, it's yeah. like, doggone yeah. it. <laughs>
1: yep. Yep. But it's it's a fun challenge. It's <laughs> it's it's what for it's, those who are willing to keep going. It's a fun challenge. Well, that's why there's
0: that's why there's so few of us. I think honestly, yeah, but I that's okay. So. That's okay. You know, if everybody did it, it would change. It would change the nature of it too. Yeah. But coming back to flowering and fruiting, I mean, you you kind of cited corallopsis as uh as creating its flowering buds in the summertime. Yeah. And um and and I think this is the biggest. Obstacle for most flowering and fruiting trees is when do you go about the pruning process to be able to cultivate a bone size shape and form? Um, when you move into the refinement process to cultivate finer branching that do bear flowering and fruiting buds, you know, and that seems to be the real crux of, of everything um, as far as like trying to work out that system. Because it seems to me when you're in development and, and really building your branch structure, that flowering and fruiting is the last consideration that you probably have. But I might be wrong in that.
1: No, I I think you're totally right. It's it's first kind of get a good eye and then figure out how to make it do the the pretty stuff. Um, that that's been my approach anyway. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I, when I'm working with a young plant or something in an Anderson flat, I don't I couldn't care less if it flowers or or fruits or whatnot. Uh, but once they start looking nice, it's 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 nice to have a ume with with a full set of flowers or 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 an ilex strata with a full set of berries. Um, and so yeah, there's. The flowering and fru- fruiting plants are so extremely nuanced. Uh, we talked about corollopsis; they're setting their buds in the summer, um, versus uh, ilex serrata, the, the, the Japanese winterberry uh, is is setting their buds. You know, as the shoots are growing, it's it's, it's flowering or it's flowering on new growth, new yeah. extensions. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, with e- each plant is is kind of their own little mental game that you have to play. And and I'd be lying if I said I, I have it all figured out. I've I've just starting to figure out what the game is for, for each plant. But it's it's going to take me five ten years to start learning all these these differences you know between the individual plants. Yeah, it's it, it's a lot of fine tuning to really figure out. And, and with them being so different, it's it's you know it's a new adventure for every single species. Even even within within a genus, it can be you know challenging.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, I think there's a few that I have in mind that I'd like to ask you about. And, and, and to start off with, I think Ume is, is one that is, it, people are, are always, people are
1: obsessed with Ume. Oh, they
0: love Ume. I mean, I get it. It's amazing.
1: I love Ume too. I, yeah, I, I'm, I have a love affair with Ume recently. And if you think about why do we love Ume, it has almost everything. It has the bark of a nice old pine. It has the deadwood of juniper. It has, um, the the ever-changing seasonality that a deciduous plant has uh, and it flowers when when nothing else is happening and so it's it's really a remarkable plant and kind of ticks all the boxes. Um, but I think in the United States I'm not sure we've really figured out Ume. Um, and it's it's a little challenging in Japan too because there was um, from what Michael tells me in Obuse actually there was the one guy who was the Ume grafter. You know, in every in Japan everybody specializes, right? And so you have the Ume grafter in Japan, and everybody sent their Ume, or, or most people sent their Ume to this one guy, and then he passes away. And so nobody really knows uh, how, <laughs> like, to, oh, how to. Yeah, yeah, what are we going to do? No, we don't, you know, we can't graft Ume like this guy did. And so it's, it's really challenging. Um, ume is. is um, so many of the Ume in Japan are hard to replicate here. Um, a lot of these Ume uh, that you see in the Kokufu show are collected from. Kind of urban yamadori Uh, so in the japanese new year's you have three important plants the pine uh, ume and bamboo Uh, and so um, most because these plants are so important to this major japanese holiday most people who had the luxury of having a a front porch or or maybe a a small backyard would have an ume maybe just potted on their property Uh, not for bonsai but just just as a celebration for new year's and so most of these old plants that you're seeing and the Kokufu Show, where where urban Yamadori just you know, bonsai professionals going up and saying, "Hey, that's a really nice plant that's been in that pot for, you know, 500 years or, or something <laughs> right, like that." Right. And so they're 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 taking these old plants and and you have kind of instant bonsai, uh, which is which is really fascinating. We we can't really, um, it's it's really hard to duplicate that because if you grow Ume from scratch, they don't bark up very quickly. Um, they don't get a lot of the deadwood qualities very quickly. so it's it's a really challenging plant to grow. Uh, I'm very envious of the material they have in Japan that's that's so kind of special. Mm-hmm. Um, but as, as far as um, how the mechanics of Ume work, I, I just got my first three or four this year, so i I, I've, I have no idea. I'm, I'm, it's a new adventure. Um, and And maybe this is your experience too, but I, I see very, very few Ume in the United States.
0: I see very few ume to begin with. I see ume, if they do make it to the United States, uh, deteriorate rapidly. Yeah. Um, because ume historically, you know, and and, and I think this, I was going to ask you this about sort of your older, more highly, highly ramified deciduous trees, but there is also a discussion about... You know, high water mobility, high water necessitating trees, developing this really fine ramification and that ramification aging to a point where it doesn't transport water as as readily. And you see that with Satsuki azaleas as a big issue with Satsuki azaleas sure. is the older the twigginess gets, the less conductive the, the tissue is. Right. Which is
1: why they seem to do a hard cut back on those every few years and yeah. really kind of rejuvenate, rebuild the plant.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And, and I guess like I, I wasn't sure if they were doing that, but I've seen that happen on a lot of older deciduous trees in Japan where, where they will take them back to structure and begin... The ramification mm-hmm. process again, but, but Ume seems to be another one that can really uh, flippantly change its opinion about a specific branch or region on the tree and how much it wants to preserve and continue feeding and fueling the growth versus completely pull resources away and move in a different direction.
1: Yeah, it's it's from my limited experience with Ume, it's been a real challenge. It's 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 a total wild card. It's it's not like Trident Maple, which is very predictable. Um, if you do X, you're going to get Y. Um, with with Ume, it's it's been well. I see the Ume masters in Japan doing this, so I'm going to do this, and then my branch dies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's been a bit of a challenge. Um, so yeah, it's I, I'm just at the beginning and and trying to figure out Ume. Yeah. Um,
0: well, but, but a lot of that, too. I mean, you made an important, uh, important I, I think, point that a lot of people don't understand or recognize, but every ume in the Kokfu or every ume that we see in bonsai cultivation is grafted. It's yeah. it's, it's grafted with an obai or a yobai or, you know, yep. depending on whether you want a single or a double or a white or a pink, they're all grafted. And like you had said, seeking out the best genetic cultivars over hundreds of years Mm-hmm. The ume are also a filtered, selected cultivar that behaves in certain ways that are very yeah. counter to a native ume's behavior. And, and that right. needs to be understood when we have frustrations here. You don't just get to have an ume and have it be what you see in Japan. That's a, a genetically engineered product.
1: Right and a lot of those ume are ornamental so they're they're not going to fruit for you. Right. Um, versus most ume plants that you might just buy seeds from online they're they're built for fruiting mm-hmm. and, and you know using as a as a, a produce crop. Yeah. Um, and so yeah ume is i am finding it to be really challenging but but a, a kind of a fun adventure um as well. Um it, they, you you brought up a good point ume is one of the few might be one of the only plants with the exception of thread grafting that we do a lot of grafting on in the deciduous bonsai world. Um, it, it's it's kind of out of necessity um, from what I've heard and, and, and found. Um, pruning an ume back, it, it doesn't reliably, reliably bud back on older wood. And so to rebuild a plant to kind of get it back to its um, a bonsai shape uh, every so often you have to graft back in and then regrow it out. Mm. Uh, and it's one of the very few plants that we do that in deciduous bonsai.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, the, the 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 curiosity and it seems like ume is a plant of momentum, but as far as like the training process of ume when you when you do start to talk about like getting past that structural and that and that branch sort of branching form and scaffolding w- when when you do start to talk about the flowering process and the timing for pruning, Ume was always interesting to me because Mr. Kremura, for one reason or another, had clients that would, you know, entrust him with their Ume. And we were mm-hmm. always making sure to have have pruned those uh, before the month of June uh, yep. finished, right? And and it was fascinating to me because you prune an Ume at that point in the summer where they're really metabolically um, moving. And yeah the response was a very vigorous flush of growth. And the leaves on that flush of growth were able to tell us whether it was a flower bud at the base of that leaf, or um, a vegetative bud at the base of that leaf. And this was
1: this by the the texture of the leaf? Yeah, the texture of the
0: leaf. Uh huh.
1: So if it was soft, it would flower? If it was Was
0: smooth and waxy, it was a flower bud in the axle of that leaf. And if it was sandpapery, that was a vegetative bud.
1: I've heard this from Peter Teen. I, I haven't heard a, a second yeah this. so that's that's exciting to hear
0: yeah yeah and it was uh and it was like clockwork too that that i, I can tell you firsthand experience that you could we could watch that into the Kokfu um yeah. and and the presentation of of the ume that 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 leaf uh behavior was absolutely spot on Yeah. And
1: they're so, they're so tricky because it's not like a coralopsis where you're going to see a difference between the flower bud and, and, and see like a clear difference between the flower bud and the shoot bud. Yeah. Uh, With, with, with Ume, it's, it's, I mean, maybe with a microscope, that might be different, but it's it's very impossible to tell with the naked eye what buds are, are going to do what.
0: Almost uh, almost entirely impossible with the naked eye yeah. to know. You just had that reference of the leaf. And again, like I think the latest we ever pruned an ume and got it to flower was the first or second week of July. And this is obviously yep. a northern hemisphere characteristic. This is a day-length characteristic. In Japan, yep. it may have been a temperature characteristic, but I have had and experienced the same behavior uh, in North America as well, but I'm sure there's nuances to that. Um, and and again, like seeing Ume sort of dwindle in their health, um, once they come to North America feels a lot to me like the same way white pine has been misinterpreted and mishandled uh, as a species that was prominently imported long ago. And there aren't many of them left just because white pine really demands some significant understanding of soil that we didn't have Mm -hmm. at the time when those were coming in. But Ume is... Ume is a wild card, and I'm glad that you're yeah. experimenting with it. I'll look forward yeah. to more knowledge as you work yeah, it
1: Yeah, I, I, I want to grow some at Rakuyo. Um, I think it's going to be a retirement project or a next generation project. <laughs> but I, I, I do want to grow some just to, to start the process along. Yeah, yeah, because they're such a rewarding plant. They're um, cool. If you do get a nice one, I mean, they're, they're they're one of the most beautiful trees I've ever seen. When you see an Ume in flower, it's it's. It has a nice old bark. It has some shari. It's it's, it's one of the most magical bones I've ever seen.
0: I think so, too. And I think you have a lot of creative uh, freedom and license with an ume. Sure. Yep. Yeah. But but uh, that kind of takes me to the next one that I've been curious about. And this is one that I've seen Michael write blog posts about. And I've never actually spoken with him about it, but but Wisteria. 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 How, you know, yeah. the big question, how do you get wisteria to flower? You know, I had one, it flowered profusely. Now two, three years, I haven't gotten it to flower again. Wisteria, how do you prune them? How do you increase flower buds? How do you get ramification? Wisteria.
1: Sure. Yeah. Wisteria, I have a lot more experience with. It's, it's a, I, I find it to be, once you figure out the nuances, it's a pretty bulletproof plant. Mm. Um, and, and so, um, Wisteria is a vine, like, you know, and so vines, they need a ton of fertilizer. Like we're, I'm, I'm fertilizing these all throughout the growing season. Uh, after they start their, their initial flowering, uh, I'm fertilizing these twice a week with liquid fertilizer, plus probably some solid fertilizer. They're, Whoa. they're really, really hungry plants. Okay. Um, so fertilization is key for them. Um, secondly, uh, they take a lot of water. Um, and so it's really hard to, to maintain a healthy wisteria. Uh, if you have a nine to five job. Mm. Um, you could try the, the the trick of having it in a pot of water uh, or or a little dish of water, but that doesn't seem to be as good as watering it five times a day when it's not in the dish. Um, so so they're a little challenging to keep up with in that regard. Um, there is a technique for wisteria. So the ramification from wisteria happens at the base of the flower bud. Once you get the racema flowers, you have all the little. They look like little fuzzy uh, leaves at, at the very base of where that that raceme started growing, and so you cut the flower bud off. Those little uh, leaflets there. Those are those are your. That's your ramification for wisteria. Mm-hmm. Um, you can induce multiple flowerings, but from the flowerings you get the branching. You get the, the ramification. Uh, you can induce multiple flowerings by defoliating wisteria, and we do a partial defoliation of it. So wisteria will have, depending on if it's a Chinese wisteria or a Japanese wisteria, it will have anywhere from eight to fourteen leaflets on on its leaves. Mm-hmm. And so you can cut those back to two pairs uh, of leaflets on every leaf, if I'm saying that right. Um, and so you you defoliate maybe 80% of the plant. Um, you take that, you know, 10, 10 leaves on that one, 10 leaflets on that one leaf, you take it down to two. Uh, you do that all over the plant, then you can get a second, even a third uh, flowering on wisteria if it's a young, strong, healthy plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, wisteria is also interesting because it's it's a plant that really trunks up in a pot. Uh, it's it's one of the few deciduous trees that will will do that. You, you can get in in 20, 30 years, you can get you start with something that's the size of your pinky, and you can get a a trunk that's two feet across. It's it's crazy. Why
0: why uh, why in a pot? Do you think? Do you have any hypothesis about that?
1: I have no idea, but I, I've just seen it happen. Um, a client has a wisteria in uh, Los Angeles that was grown by Warren Hill from a you know little pencil thing, and, and now the trunk is nearly two feet across. I've seen that here with with Peter and in, in the uh, in BSOP, who who took a little cutting, and now we, this, we have this massive trunk. Uh, so I, I've just seen other people experience it. Uh-huh. I haven't grown young wisterias, but they 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 really in a pot trunk up really fast. Oh, that's
0: fascinating. Now, um, yeah. when you when you do a partial defoliation, so wisteria has a compound leaf, uh, mm-hmm. pinnately compound leaves, so it's like a singular central stem, and it's got the small leaflets that appear as though they're their own leaves, but the bud of that compound leaf is at the base. And sure. you're saying you're going to prune back that compound leaf to the it's first two tube. leaflets. Correct. Okay. And... And you do that
1: all over the plant, if it's a young, strong plant.
0: Okay. And when you perform that action, if you are feeding as aggressively as you should be for the vine to maintain its health, you can... And watering. And and watering aggressively. uh, You can induce a second flowering, and that will give you another set of ramification, basically, because the base of the flower is where your ramified growth exists.
1: Exactly. You can even get a third. Um,
0: and is there risk in that? I mean, obviously the tree has to be strong to do that, but does that jeopardize the following season's spring flower? I've never
1: seen that. Wow! So you can also get ramification on a wisteria from the uh, uh, oh gosh, what's this called? The whip that grows. Um, mm-hmm. The um, help me with the the word. I don't the, know what that's called. The tendril. So- the oh, tendril. Oh, okay. The 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 tendril. That's something that is is really great for wisteria because that's something that you can wire. Um, the ramification that you get from the flower buds, you, you can't really wire. It's There's not really anything to do. And it's you get this little, small, stubby growth, and it's very brittle. Mm-hmm. But the tendrils that, that grow the, the, the kind of reaching arms of a vine. The vining uh, you can part get a, of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can get a wire on that, bend it, and, and get some really fun movement into that. So that's another way to build ramification on them.
0: Now, can you cut wisteria back heavily? Can you cut wisteria back in, into the old wood and have it
1: bud reliably or is that dangerous i i've i've have limited experience doing that but the the experience that i have i've done that maybe two or three times and it it worked beautifully Mm -hmm. so i i think they're 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 really tough plant any of the vines are just remarkably inconceivably tough
0: yeah but it sounds like you have to Feed the beast in order for it yeah. to stay a beast. Because I've had um, early on in my bonsai career in California when I was in college, I, I had a just like a world class wisteria, and um, you know, you when you get a lot of times when you dig an old wisteria out of a landscape or something, you do have these big long uh, kind of bulky branches, and then you kind of are sitting there yep. looking at like, what the hell do I do with this, you know? And I've had them where I've cut them back, and they've budded for me and i've had them where i've cut them back and and I, and I got a lot of die back and i never really knew what the difference was with that but um yeah. but but i also wasn't I, I can tell you i wasn't doing bonsai well at that point either so there's probably some of that
1: yeah i suspect if you get an old one uh you collect an old one you can stabilize it into a pot um or or a container uh i i suspect if you can stabilize it give it a year off uh, kind of like what we do with with conifer yamadori then then you can make that hard cut the next year and, and, and be set up for success mhm mhm that would be my intuition
0: yeah and and what's the difference between the chinese and japanese wisteria you kind of brought that Good up question. but i'm curious about that
1: yeah so most of the wisteria that we want to use for bonsai is the chinese wisteria in in, in japanese bonsai that's mostly what they use uh, so the chinese wisteria has a much shorter raceme of flowers um, it's, it's maybe a quarter the length of the Japanese wisteria. So, so the Chinese wisteria has a nice small, uh, flower raceme, uh, and the leaves, it, it's a little bit of a shorter leaf. Um, the other difference is the, w- the Chinese wisteria will bloom all at once versus the Japanese wisteria will bloom that dirt along that, uh, raceme sequentially. So it will start, you know, at at the top where that flower bud is growing. It will flower and then it kind of grows and and flowers down. Versus the Chinese kind of puts out all the flowers at once. Aha, uh-huh. aha. Uh-huh. So, well, that's a- the 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 flowers on the Japanese can be two three feet long. Yeah. So so for bonsai, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. Just proportional, almost. Yeah. Right and then when you move into
0: the realm of crabapple um crabapple i'm going to say crabapple is is a mystery to me and i want to go from crabapple to to uh, to to apple um, but crabapple timing for pruning to be able to refine it as much as a crabapple is refinable and and still have it flower and fruit what does that look like because crabapple
1: flowers on Old wood? The spur branches. The spur branch, Old wood, right? Older wood, yeah. Okay. They're not flowering on the new new growth. So any, any plant that flowers on the old wood like that, uh, I, I'm not pruning it a lot in the fall. Uh, most of my pruning is done in the, the summertime for mm-hmm. that. Um, just like on Ume. We, just we like don't want to prune it too late. Uh, otherwise, we might prune off what's, what's going to flower next year. Um, Crab apple, it's, it's a tough plant. It's in the rose family. And so um, it has a lot of disease issues. Um, especially if you're on the East coast, you're, you're going to get the apple cedar rust. Uh, and that's, that's not fun. Um, so it's, it's, it's a plant I don't grow a lot of. Um, I I really want to get my hands on the the malice, some that the, with the orange fruit, um, that you see in the cook food books. I think that's a really beautiful plant. But because of the disease problems that I've I've experienced on them, I, I tend to not grow very many crab apple. Mm-hmm. I think the East Coast has some beautiful ones. If I was living out there, I'd look for the ones that grow in the cow pastures that, that you can have some potential for Yamadori, which is so rare with deciduous bonsai. But I, I don't do a lot of crab apples in my practice. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you find that flowering and fruiting species in general tend to be more disease prone or is that not necessarily the case?
1: I think so. I, I think that's. I think you. I think. I think you can make that case. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. I have no idea. But I, I know the the flowering and fruiting plants seem to be a lot less stable than you know your maple or your beech or your hornbeam.
0: Yeah. 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 I've always wondered that because I, I I would I would say the same thing is true. I mean, you just they just tend to seem to be susceptible, and there is a pretty strong. I think dogma that I don't know if it's necessarily true or not, that, that the flowering and fruiting um, expenditure of energy uh, weakens the plant. Now, I, I don't necessarily abide by that or believe that to be true, but I, I, I could be wrong. I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think the biggest question about that for flowering and fruiting is, is that the, the myth is that takes a lot of energy away, that process. Uh, because when the plants are focused on growing those flowers or fruits, they're they're putting a lot of resources into that. But if you look at a growing flower or fruit, it's green, uh, and it being green means there's chlorophyll cells in 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 those those you know parts, and so they're producing some of their own food. Now the question is, and I've never seen a scientific study address this, but are they producing 100% of the 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 food needed to to, to grow that flower or grow that fruit or is it just producing 30% and it's robbing the other 70 from the plant. Right. Um, so that's, nobody's really asking those questions. Um, but, but that's, that would really tell us uh, what's going on there as, as far as energy distribution for those the, those flowering, fruiting bonsai.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense. I mean, I guess it makes sense to me in a bonsai container where you're constricting the root mass and you're constricting resources where the production of that kind of cellular division and tissue would be very yeah. exhaustive. But then it's also like, yeah, maybe, but that's like the same thing as saying, Yeah, I still hear people uh, say like they want to remove the pollen cones on pines or they want to remove the pollen cones and berries on junipers or they want to take off the pine cones on a dug fir. And it's like, God, it doesn't feel like the tree would spin the inner, like trees are not stupid, right? They're actually probably
1: smarter than we are. Um, And and, and azalea has evolved to put out a ton of flowers and and do just fine. Absolutely. That, that's where I hear this this the most is with azaleas. Uh, to, to step outside of the deciduous model for a minute. Uh, but with azaleas, you know, people will tell you don't let it flower. You're you're gonna kill your, your tree. Um or, or take all the ovaries off after the flowers. I, I don't think it's necessarily as detrimental as people think. Yeah I think that the issue might more be uh proper fertilization of those trees. Yeah. Making sure that if, if they're they're doing this this stressful process then they, they have the resources to do that if it, you know, efficiently.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that makes sense to me because just like anything else, a plant doesn't spend energy it doesn't have. Um, now, whether or not that energy that it would be spending, you can redirect that. I can see that as being a, a thought process that could be potentially utilized, but it's different than saying it weakens the plant, right? It's just yeah. saying, no, it just used right. the energy for one thing as opposed to another. And there's no... Because the meristems where the cellular division are are completely differentiated and the trigger for those meristems to grow is photoperiod and temperature, there is mm-hmm. no guarantee that when you, quote-unquote, spare the tree's energy by stopping it yeah. from flowering or fruiting, that that does, in fact, get redirected to the apical meristem or the vascular meristem. There's no, there's no discussion of that, right? This is a yeah, very yeah. advanced—because in the— in the world of, you know, fruit production or something like that, nobody's sitting out there being like, "Hey, let's let's go let's go keep it from fruiting this year so it can fruit more next year." Now they might be dropping and thinning fruit.
1: Yeah. Which, and that's
0: a whole different conversation. Which is a completely different thing entirely, right? But yeah. but it, an interesting the bonsai sort of world obsessing about these things that really don't have any valid truth is, is fascinating. And I think flowering and fruiting hasn't had as much time in the spotlight to be really analyzed.
1: Right. Right. Anything that's a little bit confusing is going to have a lot more of that mythology behind it. Yeah. Yeah. And folklore. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's it's an added thing that we have to deal with, with flowering and fruiting plants.
0: So so are there flowering and fruiting plants besides, I know, it feels like Coralopsis is maybe one. I know you have a, a really nice Coralopsis that you've been working on, or maybe more
1: than one. Um, yeah, I have, I have two nice old ones um, mm-hmm. that I've, I've been really fortunate to get my hands on. Um, so that's, that's one that I have a lot of experience with, because uh, I'm growing quite a few young ones as well. Um, that's a great one. But you, you're, you were going to ask if, if there's any others that I'm really...
0: Yeah, well, yeah. Where where did Morning you? With. Yeah, what are you passionate about in terms of this realm and this genre?
1: Yeah, ume is 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 one that I really want to grow and and get a get a whole handle on. Um, the other one that we haven't talked about tonight is is Chinese quince, the pseudo Sedonia. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: that is a really interesting plant. Uh, it's it's one of the more powerful uh, deciduous aesthetics. You know, we don't have a lot of deciduous bonsai that have you know very massive, beefy, chunky qualities to them, but Chinese quince is definitely one of those plants. Um, I, I tend to like them more for the, the trees themselves uh, rather than the, the flowers or the fruit. Um, I could really care less <laughs> if it has a, a fruit on it, but I, I, I find the plants themselves super, super interesting. So I'm going to grow a lot of Chinese quince. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's, it's underutilized in, in bonsai in, in, in North America. Um, and I think it's one that could be really, really fun to play with.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and, and okay, so so take Chinese quince, for example, obviously disproportionate fruit size. Any Chinese quince, Pseudocydonia that you see in the Kokfu, that fruit has been uh, meticulously refrigerated for a prolonged period of time and basically, yeah. you know, punctured back onto the tree yeah. for it to support it, which is really interesting that that is... Acceptable, I guess, in the whole scheme of things, but that's fine. I don't.
1: Yeah, I've seen that with persimmon too at the Tycoon Ten. You know, see a little persimmon fruits wired to the branches. Right. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, it, I, I'm not really big into that, but um, yeah, with 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 Chinese quince I find it to be such a beautiful plant just on its own. Uh, it has incredible fall color. It's it's one of the best fall color plants uh, in, in the deciduous uh, bonsai yard. Um, it has super strong qualities, which we don't find in something like a Japanese maple or, 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 or some other plants that we tend to work with. Um, and it's, it has the exfoliating bark. So it has a lot of really interesting qualities. Um, I've heard from a lot of people that they can be challenging to flower and fruit, Mm -hmm. um, And I guess personally, it's just not a question that I I really care to answer. Maybe once I get a bunch of old ones, I'll I'll start having those concerns. But I I just want to grow some Chinese quince trunks because I think they're really fascinating plants. Yeah, Really, really compelling plants.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, they're another one, much like you talked about, the Japanese holly or the Japanese winterberry, uh, Ilex serrata you yeah. talk, you talked about that as as being a, a deciduous variety that's flowering on the new growth and and yeah. chinese quince is another one that's flowering that's the on way. the new growth right so yep. i think the biggest issue for most people is is choosing to not prune mm-hmm. Uh, right. When you're getting this big vigorous flush, because the vigorous pieces are what's going to have the energy to produce the flower, and all of a sudden now, you yeah, know, exactly, you're almost it, at odds with a refined tree and letting this robust growth occur. It's sure. It's that's a challenging thing to reconcile.
1: Yeah, and it's not like ilex where it, it it will flower, you know, within the first two or three inches. You got to really let it extend for for to get a flower bud. It's, yeah. So it's it's. I'm sure I'll, I'll get to that challenge eventually, but I'm going to spend the next 10, 15 years just growing some trunks. You got some time. <laughs> you got you got time. Ta- tackle that when I when I get there.
0: Well, you know, the um, benefit of trying to grow trunks is you're going to watch it go through the flowering phase a lot. And that's exactly. going to be super educational for figuring that out.
1: I think so. Yeah, yeah. And like Strato, you, you mentioned that. That's another one that I really, really love and and, and want to grow a lot of. Uh, we have a native equivalent that's that's pretty damn good. Uh, Ilex verticulata uh-huh. uh, It's a native to the East coast uh, in that it's, it's almost identical in its quality to Ilex serrata. Oh, wow. Um, really beautiful plant. Um, so if, if you have an affinity for native plants, then that's, that's one to play with. Uh, but the, the, the Japanese winterberry Ilex serrata is just as good. Um, it, it's a really, I, I find Ilex serrata to be a really easy plant as well. Um, it's like trying to maple. I, I know what to expect from it. It's a shrub. So that that's, um, it's, it's not a tree, it's a shrub. So that brings into the conversation here a whole different aspect that we haven't really covered um, because a lot of flowering and fruiting bonsai are shrubs and they're managed very differently than trees. Um, but but Ilex serrata, it's, it's a really, really beautiful plant. It's one of the few plants that looks good, um, looks exceptionally good and interesting in the wintertime. Um, and so, so it's, it's one I want to grow just for the seasonality. Uh, having you know those red berries next to 10 other deciduous trees on, on the bench in the wintertime, that tree really stands out. And so, so yeah. I, I want to grow quite a few of those.
0: Those red berries. I've been scarred from Ilex serrata uh, probably <laughs> for the rest of my life. I was... Why is that? Um, well, I was responsible for the kokefu trees as an apprentice. And we had uh-huh. an Ilex serrata that was loaded with berries. And Mr. Kamura said, don't let the birds eat it because it's the first tree, that red color berry berries the first tree that birds will go after and um i was unsuccessful in preventing the birds from eating it did you were did you guys build a cage around it um so so it was really interesting because i i was only taking my cues from my senpai and arushabata uh was my senpai and Mm -hmm. there is another variety um in Japan called Tsuru Ume Modoki. So yep. I like Sarada's Ume Modoki. Tsuru Ume Modoki is uh, called a bittersweet. Uh, it yep. has uh, like a yellow shell and a red center. And we had yeah. had a Tsuru Ume Modoki that was really beautiful the year, my first year. And I watched how Uru Shibata had taken care of that. I was back in the greenhouse with the kokufu trees all the time. And he had just hid it out of sight through the shelter of some plants and the mm-hmm. birds never ate it. Uh, and so yeah. I had taken the same approach because that was what I'd been taught and I'd observed, and uh, that didn't work. The birds ate it. It was almost <laughs> yeah. the end of my apprenticeship. It was a really, that was a really challenging time for me. But um, after that, I was just, that and the fact that they're so
1: brittle, right? Um, they're ex- very brittle plants. Super With gnarly. Chinese quince, they're, they're two of the most brittle plants yep. in, in deciduous bonsai.
0: Yeah, and you have to have a male, you have to have a male plant to get yeah, uh, a Japanese holly or an Ilex serrata to, to produce produce fruit and the male yeah. the male plant is a very weak plant which is also very interesting to me that they tend to not have the same vigor as the female
1: yeah i i haven't found that we have a stud plant here uh, the boy toy that comes out whenever <laughs> whenever the, the ladies <laughs> need uh, some some berries uh and that that plant it, it i mean it's in a really deep you know plastic pot uh-huh. so it, it, it seems to be a tank Oh, so it's,
0: it's so you haven't found oh interesting okay I've never I've never heard that. anybody say that they had a really strong uh v- vigorous yeah, male I have maybe three
1: or four foot extension on this this male stud plant. cool okay I so stand corrected that's great yeah, maybe it' was, I mean maybe it's just I have a weird one but, but a yeah, particularly
0: it's uh virile stud. Aggressive. Yeah. yeah 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 but he,
1: <laughs> he seems to be super super strong um <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, well, so- uh, yeah. So, so yeah, you, you definitely need a, a male plant. The interesting thing is we have a few different species of ilex here, and the the male ilex serrata will f- produce berries on both the ilex, the female ilex serrata, the female ilex verticulata, and the female ilex reticulata. Hmm. So that's that's been kind of interesting to see.
0: Yeah, that is fascinating. I wonder if uh, if having the serrata on the verticulata and the reticulata. It changes in any way the characteristic because yeah um, I,
1: I i've collected berries and growing i'm growing the seeds so we'll, we'll see if if we get any fun new ilex varieties
0: yeah that's fascinating there was a, a nashi grower a japanese japanese pear grower um and you know, in Japan, a really high level fruit grower is going to produce fruit that are twenty or thirty bucks a pair. You know, and like yeah, that's kind of the and and Takeini Son, who was one of Mr. Kamura's clients, was a, was one of the top two uh, nashi growers in Japan, and uh, and he was always talking about he was getting. You know, pollen to pollinate his nashi because they hand pollinated their entire orchard um, yeah. themselves. And he was getting pollen from all all different areas and certain parts of his um, orchard were being pollinated with one type of pollen versus another. And this was changing the flavor of the nashi
1: that were being produced. And, yeah that's another thing like bonsai would take a whole lifetime to begin to understand what's happening
0: ah uh, if talking with him was just like such a brain dump of inspirational ideas but i mean he was pushing at that level with fruit production and it was yeah. really really inspiring so I, I when you said that that, that single pollen uh yeah. was, was yeah. able to cause reproduction in multiple varieties that's interesting
1: Yeah. And the other thing too here that I was going to bring up is we have, we've left our Ilexerata out the last four or five years and and no birds have touched them. We don't do any special protection. We don't put them in a wire cage. We don't put them in the greenhouse or anything like that. They're just left out on the bench all winter long and those berries stay. So we must not have the birds that attack them (laughs) in Japan, but they, I mean, it's so at least here in Portland so far, fingers crossed um, they've, 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 been super super easy, no protection needed at all.
0: That's the craziest thing I've ever heard.
1: That's the yeah. craziest thing I've yeah. ever. heard. Which is why I want to grow so many of them. Oh, <laughs> I mean, man. in Portland, they're such an easy plant to grow. They they root from cutting incredibly easily, um, and so it's it's just a it's a it's a really um, rewarding plant to grow because it's just going to do what you want it to. Now we need to go
0: back because I think you kind of dropped a nugget of knowledge on us that we kind of blazed past in the serata discussion and that is a lot of flowering and fruiting plants are shrubs and, and others are trees and you treat them very differently and you kind of you like uh laid that egg and i think we need yep. to sit on it a little bit
1: we need to sit on it yeah, yeah. so what, what does I mean, that we mean can, we can take several different avenues i mean if both horticulturally and aesthetically it opens up a lot of new conversations uh most of what we're working with in bonsai are trees uh, but when we enter the deciduous model, we have a lot more opportunity for shrubs. I mean, in, in conifer world, maybe juniper is the one exception. It's right. kind of a shrub-ish tree. Um, but in deciduous world, you know, maybe half the plants that we're working with are shrubs. And so um, just just touch on it really quickly, aesthetically, um, that might mean having multiple trunks. That might mean the form being more horizontal than it is vertical. That might mean more, uh, if you're going for a more naturalistic uh, a more naturalistic approach that might mean more contortedness of the branches, so really more crazy, sharper lines, rather than trees which tend to have more gentle lines. Um, so, so I think aesthetically, in the in my approach with deciduous bonsai, they're they're uh, really really fun because they're so different than these you know single trunk trees with you know the, the upright form that we're we're so used to working with uh, with shrubs. Uh, in my approach, I, I like them to be natural. So multiple trunks, more horizontal, uh, a little bit more dynamism in in the in the the movement of the branching. Uh, so I think that's a aesthetically, I think they're they can they can be a whole different challenge.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um horticulturally, uh the way we work with a shrub is very, very different than the way we work with a tree. Um we're you know, a tree we we focus a lot on the crown because that's where all the strength is. They're apically dominant uh, versus a shrub, they're, they're basally dominant. You know, they don't want to grow up, they want to grow out. So they're going to kill off the nice old parts that we're so interested in a bonsai and, and keep putting out all these young suckers. So, so maintenance of an old, uh, shrub, like a old ilex Ilexerata, an old Coralopsis, even an old Satsuki is, is to constantly keep up on pruning those, those suckers that grow off the base because the, the plant is going to invest a lot of resources there and, and rob the, the older parts of the plant. Um, so so horticulturally they're 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 a whole kind of new game. We keep them in deeper pots than we do the trees. Um, they like to be moist but not wet uh, generally speaking um, they like a little bit more fertilizer than trees um, so it's 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 uh, It's a whole kind of different world, uh, working with a shrub versus working with a tree.
0: Yeah. Interesting. And obviously Chojubai uh, falls inside of that shrub kind of genre and stuff growing out as opposed to up in the older sections being shed. Although boxwood not prized for its flowers, um, but definitely boxwood being a shrub, do you find in the broadleafed evergreen genre that the same concepts apply?
1: I think so. Um, I, I'm starting to play with a few camellias growing a, a batch of young camellias. Yeah. Um, and, and the, so far they seem to be just in line with, with the rest of the shrubs. Um, I, I, I think boxwood, another one is, yeah, I think it's, it's very similar. Although boxwood has kind of more tree like tendencies than I think shrub like tendencies,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, from the ones that I've played with, um, but yeah, I, I think it it does carry over to the broadleaf evergreens. Hmm. Uh, with the broadleaf evergreens, though, they they tend their forms tend to be more um, anonymous. They tend to be more uh, open to suggestion. So we see the sotskis styled like pines because you know sotsky in its 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 own natural form is not very appealing. So they, you can be most people tend to be a little bit more creative with their forms on on the broadleaf evergreens.
0: Hmm. And when you get into like, because when I when whenever I get into broadleafed evergreens, if you talk like a silverberry, um, or you, mm-hmm. you look at olive, whether you're talking about um, silvestris or oleaster, or you get into um, quercus and the and the evergreen broadleaf quercus,
1: yep. live oaks,
0: uh, live oaks, yeah, exactly. Um, partial defoliation as a means to stimulate ramifiable growth and ramification on a higher level works extremely well from, from, from my experience anyways.
1: Yeah. I, I don't find a lot of difference in the techniques that I apply with deciduous broadleafs versus um, evergreen broad leaves. Mm-hmm. Um I, I, I think they're, they tend to be treated very similarly.
0: And so when you talk about camellia though this is really where i start to this is really where i start to lose my bearing on cultivation of a refinable broadleaf that is also flowering and fruiting yeah. right because like now you have a camellia that typically tends to be a relatively coarse plant mm-hmm. uh, and you have this flowering characteristic that we're trying to harness but you also do have like a a battery that you have to manage from a broadleaf perspective in order to be able to, you know, so like, how do you reconcile those to continue? I think it all
1: goes back to the fertilizing. I think, you know, we need with, with deciduous bonsai, especially flowering and fruiting bonsai, I I'm finding out lately in my practice that I would much rather put the brakes on something than put the gas on something. And so I'm, I'm, I'd much rather tell this plant to slow down. Like I, I want to say this growth is too strong. That's, that's a luxury, especially when working with old deciduous bonsai. Um, and so I, I'm tend to be on the the more aggressive side of fertilizing. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I find most of the the trees that I've acquired, um, most of the old plants that I've acquired have, have been under fertilized. And, And so once I, you know, take them home. I, I, I really up the fertilizer regimen and they seem to really bounce back. Hmm. Um, it's, I, I think in general we're under fertilizing our refined deciduous bonsai in North America.
0: And I, I would, it sounds to me like, uh, and this coincides with what my senpai Fujikawa, when he was here in the fall, I was just picking his brain about deciduous and broadleaf work. And he was like, the answer to every question was fertilize. The answer to yeah. every single question was fertilize, fertilize more, fertilize more aggressively, fertilize more aggressively, and, and um, you know, coming back. So I, I hear you seeing this, saying the same thing, you know, and 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 clearly, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And Dennis has his, sure. you know, approach. Um, Tunis Yon in in Rotterdam, um, who won best broadleaf at the trophy and, and, and has a ginkgo award for a Mm -hmm. broadleaf too, which is out of unheard of in Europe, um, also had the same thing to say that his fertilizer application is the key to his success with his broadleafs. But how are you, what are you fertilizing with when you say fertilize a lot? What
1: does that mean?
0: Can you quantify that? Yeah.
1: Lately I've, I haven't been married to one thing. I've, I've taken the same approach that the nutritionists tend to say for humans. And so they, they say, if you, if you're just doing one really strict diet, then you're not going to have all your bases covered. So, so tackling the problem from a lot of different uh, angles has been my approach the last few years. So I'm using solids, I'm using liquids, I'm using organics and I'm using chemicals. Oh, Um, I I, I'm hitting, hitting everything from all different angles. I I'm using, the same products for all of my trees, but the timing is, is what I change up. Hmm. Um, So I'm not using, you know, one product on old trees, one product on young trees. Um, But I do change the the frequency in which I fertilize. So in the spring and the fall in Portland, I think it's really productive to use a solid fertilizer when we have a lot of rain, but in the summertime when we're bone dry, I don't find a lot of benefit with, with solid fertilizer. I, I see it shrivel up on the pot between waterings and it just doesn't seem to be microbially active mm-hmm. um,
0: and, what and so, what solid fertilizer do you find to be your flavor of choice or what fertilizers i guess
1: yeah i like i like BioGold. Mm-hmm. i i it's like you know it's it's one of the few fertilizers specifically designed by bonsai by by mr murata um and, and so it's it's great because it, it was designed very intentionally for bonsai by a bonsai person mm-hmm. um and and so I think it's a really thoughtful fertilizer. It does have the expense, which, which is challenging. Um, but I think it's a really great one. Um, there's, there's other fertilizers, uh, solid fertilizers. I think, um, for young plants, maybe Osmocote, if you need a little bit more, um, if you need a little bit more oomph, um, Osmocote can be a, a decent one. The, the one that has you know uh, lower numbers, there's, there's two of them. Right. Um, I think, um, I I I I'm not really a brand person. I, I Gary Wood told me once a nutrient is a nutrient is a nutrient. So the tree doesn't care if it's a nitrogen from biogold or if it's nitrogen from the Portland Rose Society fertilizer. If, if it's getting in, then it's it's doing its job. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I'm not married to any brands um with with liquid fertilizers. Most of the fish emulsions I, I I'm a big fan of. Um we we did a sort of anecdotal experiment here, where we used uh, regular fish emulsion uh, that you buy at Home Depot—the just Alaska fish—and at the Japanese garden, they were using you know cold-press fish hydrolyte. Yeah, and we found absolutely no difference. Right. I mean, it wasn't a super scientific <laughs> study, but it, it's kind of comical what those fish fertilizers, you know, what what those companies will will do. Some will say we only use human-grade fish. I mean, the tree's not going to care if that was a, a salmon as opposed to a carp. I mean, as long as the, the nutrition is there to to back it up. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, with the fish fish and I just use regular again uh, uh, Alaska fish fertilizer uh, is is a pretty good one. Um, I like uh, DynaGrow products. Um, DynaGrow Grow is a really good chemical liquid fertilizer. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a lot of good micronutrients, which I think the fish lacks on. So, so I, I like the, the dyna There's another one by, uh, Fox Farm called GrowBig, which is really nice. Um, so those are kind of the, the tools in my tool chest and I, I use them, um, in, in different ways to, to get the results I need.
0: Yeah. And when you talk about, um, fertilizer, I, I after the compost extract and a lot of the soil food web concepts that uh, that Ian Hunter brought to the table, he he's he's definitely. Um, having success in and I would say uh, a, a lot of success applying these concepts to more large scale growing operations, fertility in the ground, etc. And, and everything changes in the bonsai pot. Right? It, it was a stumbling point. I knew I knew better. Um, and I think we were both optimistic of what it would do. And that the lesson learned, it's been great. I've continued to um, I've continued to test my soils and understand with with sort of the continuation of that, what has happened. And the yeah. most recent test is by far and away the most has been the most fruitful for my understanding. But one of the really interesting things about, you know, the discussion of the bonsai container is that we have that shallow soil column, which means water doesn't move as rapidly. And you've talked about the water exchange rate having a significant impact, which I second that and firmly believe that. But with that water exchange rate being slower in a bonsai container, one of the things that that favors is a higher amount of bacterial concentration. And one of the interesting aspects of water in not not the entirety of North America, but a majority of North America with a hel- he- heavy calcium concentration in our soils, is mm. is that a lot of our water has um, has a lot of uh, carbonate concentration in it, which causes alkalinity to be an issue. And when you have alkalinity, it favors bacteria. When you have a shallow soil column that doesn't dry out rapidly, that favors bacteria as well. And consequently, when you talk about fungal activity being the most beneficial for the cultivation of plants in, in, in containerized environments and symbiotic relationships, we really are swimming counter to creating highly fungal concentrations primarily those occur in deeper containers the nursery container really deep ceramic containers the cascading form uh, of the container would facilitate this the most primarily but here's the other interesting thing is when you start to break down nitrogen sources you know to a degree gary wood is correct as far as the plant but the plant isn't the only thing that matters, you know, in terms of nutrition. Yeah. And all of a sudden, when you start talking about feeding fungal activity versus bacterial activity, which we're already feeding bacterial activity heavily just by the practice of bonsai and by the inherent quality of our waters in North America. And I'm going to say quality of water in, in the world is becoming more—well, I, I, that's not fair— a lot of water systems are becoming more alkaline and less quality over the course of time. Mm -hmm. So you have these two things that favor bacteria. Well, then you start to talk about your form of nitrogen. And when you you talk about your ammonium uh, forms of nitrogen, the least oxidized, means that it's the most available to the most rapid-moving decomposer, and the most rapid-moving decomposer is bacteria. So your ammonium forms, of nitrogen are feeding and fueling bacterial growth and expansion, which we're already fighting. But when you start to talk about your your nitrification, or not nitrification, but your nitrate, your oxidation of nitrogen forms, the more oxidized the nitrogen form is, the more complex and slow it is to be broken down by microbial activity. And that favors fungal growth, right? Mm -hmm. But the problem with that is when you look in a bonsai container, and Troy and I are doing an experiment right now on some Chinese elms, where we've been feeding them with fish emulsion over the course of the year. Um, They're in solid pumice. They don't have any organic. So there's nothing for the, the fish emulsion uh, resources to stay in the soil on. Um, but we recently applied, uh, gold to these, right. Mm-hmm. They've been anemic the entire year. We apply an application of BioGold, gold and they greened up within a week. I mean, they, they went from yellow to green within a week, yeah. right? It was immediate. It's crazy. The problem with BioGold gold is the nitrogen source for BioGold, gold or the nitrogen form is very ammonium based, which is why when you open the bag, you get that hit of ammonia, yeah. right? Yeah. Um and so when you talk about a soil food web sustainability fungal um you know mycorrhizal relationship that we all like quest for or find this value in one bonsai in the shallow environment is swimming against that two water quality is working against that and three our form of fertilizer is working against that but the thing that I continue to come back to is Biogold has still given me the best result that I've seen, even though technically from a plant health perspective, it it, it is the McDonald's of nitrogen sources. Yet in a bonsai container, it has been the highest performer. And I don't know how to reconcile that. I just, all the knowledge I'm taking in says this should not be the best thing. And all of my Understanding of bonsai is that it doesn't behave the way things "quote unquote" should, and BioGold, being the poorest form of nitrogen, has been the most effective nutritional supplement for my trees.
1: That's fascinating. Are you exclusively using BioGold, or are you using any other products?
0: I'm not. I, so I haven't used BioGold for two and a half years. Um, okay. I have a surplus of BioGold. That's like you know. Capable yeah. capable of, of of feeding a lot of collections. Um uh-huh. because I really wanted to dive deep into this soil science and understand it yeah. better. Um and interestingly enough, I will say this. Um putting the biogold on the elms and watching them change like that had a major impact on me. Just because I've been wondering, I've been wondering what happens if I put the biogold back on these trees after several years. Now I will say this, fungal content, health of the ecosystem inside of my conifers, not having the ecosystem, not the tree, but the ecosystem Mm -hmm. on my conifers is more robust than it's ever been. Fungal activity on junipers, I have mycorrhiza. Uh, which Uh I've never seen before. I've never seen this before. Uh, Pines, I've got uh, copious quantities to the degree that the birds are annihilating our containers this year. We just got an attack of birds with this smoke that is the worst I've ever seen. They used to attack for crane fly. We don't Uh have any more crane fly, but they are definitely feeding on earthworm populations in our containers, which is magical.
1: Crazy. Yeah, Yeah, I find in my practice and my experience, I find that, fungal relationships in the containers I, i've seen um trees that have a lot of mycorrhizae and trees that have none at all mm-hmm. uh, for, at least from the visible eye same same species and and both of them have the exact same health so i'm not sure it's something that is is really needed to have a healthy eye. And, and especially in, in in the deciduous model um i don't we don't run into mycorrhizae as much as as I see in, in coniferous bonsai, yeah. Uh, yeah, in our bonsai pots, I,
0: I, I exactly. And so you have this grand idea, right, of this soil health, the soil system, the soil food web. How much of that trickles down into bonsai is is really the ultimate question yeah. that has been, I think, posed by all of these experiments. And I would also go as far as saying I have seen tremendous mycorrhizal. Uh, relationships in bonsai containers on a completely unhealthy tree, yeah, on a completely unhealthy pine, on a pine that is absolutely struggling and not yeah. capable, you know, and so you and the and and you can explain that you can say, well, that the the fungus is consuming all of the resources and there's nothing left for the tree, yeah, and so then you get into this odd discussion of well, is this good or is this bad, and it, it's it really is complex. I think soil. I said it today on our mini stream, but I think soil is the next major pioneering
1: ground for bonsai. I do. Yeah, it's, it's definitely complex, and and I think as bonsai professionals, we're kind of uniquely uh, in a position to really kind of figure this out. Um, you know, I think the main problem when talking about fertilizers is there's there's with all the cannabis growing and indoor gardening and whatnot there's so much uh, product on the market Mm -hmm. and when there's product on the market, there's, there's people making money. And and so they're going to make claims about these fertilizers that may or may not be true. Sure. And so I, I, I'm seeing more hype on the bottles than I've ever seen before.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. To try try and differentiate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so as bonsai professionals, you know, we don't just have 30 plants, we have 300 or, or, or 900, like, like you've been saying. And so, um, if we're going to spend money on a product it better damn well work yeah. otherwise you know we, we don't make a lot of money I mean we're <laughs> we, we don't have money to waste so totally. if we're going to use something like seaweed we better see a very strong visual you know benefit from that um, and so like with with some of the fancy fertilizers like cold press fish hydrosollate I, I, I've seen no no difference between the the 1599 gallon jug of fish emulsion that I buy at home depot.
0: Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's what that's what pushed me into that thought. I'm glad that you circled back to that, uh, the hydrolysate versus the the fish emulsion, the more. Um Whatever, heat treated fish emulsion yeah, extract. Yeah. You know, ultimately, if you went into like a a deeper biological dive, you'd find that the amino acid chains are much longer in the cold pressed, and that they have a far more uh, complex amount of uh, of those amino acids intact that then the plant can respond to. But but this is where I go back because I know that I know that that's scientifically proven that exists. That's what causes. Uh, people I think to at least on the scientific level to find more value in them and does that have a trickle down to price probably because it's more painstaking but yeah. where does that where does that actually show itself in bonsai and 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 that's that's what I'm so wrestling with right now and trying to figure out and why I'm asking you so much about fertilizers and why I continue to just hammer on these soil tests and trying to figure this out is where is the threshold of too much too detailed uh but absolutely yeah. non-applicable to bonsai and where do you I mean, hit that line where you say now it functions and matters
1: i mean not to always compare everything to japan but did you ever hear kimura or kobayashi or shinji suzuki or any of these people talking about you know plant science or 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 the the, the microbial activity or, or all of these really complex soil kind of things i mean or are they just using fertilizer and having healthy bonsai? Mean,
0: no, Mr. Mr. Kamura definitely. De- Mr. But Mr. Kamura has a has a background in uh, in plant physiology. I mean, he went to he went to school for it. So he he had radical he had radical plant knowledge. Uh, Mr. Kamura okay. did, and he spoke he spoke of that level uh, periodically, but not okay. consistently. And that wasn't like at the epicenter of our education and I don't know how yeah. much of it I think he knew more about plant physiology than he applied to bonsai. And so yeah. that's where I think you're coming from is like they're not out there beating their brains on the science of the cation yeah. exchange capacity of akadama, right? They right. like they right. don't
1: they don't care, right? As long as the trees are healthy, right? Right. But and so that, I mean, my, my biggest question with, with fertilizer is, is not a lot of these things we've discussed the last 10 minutes, but my biggest question is, is playing with frequency of fertilizer. Um, and so I know this, this comes from Ebihara, who would fertilize his, his maples that he was growing. Um, he would fertilize them with a, a diluted dose, dose of fish emulsion three to four times a week. You know, every other day or every three days, something like that, he was using just a little bit of fish emulsion. Mm-hmm. It was almost just constant, you know, pumping of, of nutrients into these these plants. Yeah. And because of that, he was able to take a, an air layer and, get, and win a coca prize in 25 years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that makes sense. The, the last time Ian was on... You know, after we had done a lot of the soil science analysis, I mean, we're closer to hydroponic cultivation in bonsai than we are to uh, organic in-ground cultivation. Like And and so if you look at that and you say, all right, well, you don't have a solid source that's constantly dumping small amounts of decomposed uh, nutrition into the container now to be feeding more frequently with a liquid like a fish emulsion in a lower dosage. Is what yep. creates the consistency that allows a plant to have a baseline of a high level of available resources. That yeah. makes a lot of sense to me. My question continues to be: When or has Japan ever experienced phosphorus, potassium, uh, you know, overaccumulation, <laughs> or sodium overaccumulation, yeah. or calcium deficiency? Because here's the other undeniable thing about Japan that I think has to be acknowledged: is they lean heavily on chemicals all yeah. year long. I mean, you're yeah. talking the rate of chemical application in Japan to cultivate bonsai is gross. It's gross. Yeah. And yeah, that is so a, that is a measurable byproduct of the way that you fertilize.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've heard horror stories. Michael told me once he was, he was his parents were visiting him during his apprenticeship and, and they were taking the trade. And uh, they saw, you know, just people spraying all these pesticides on, on these trees in an orchard. And it was just blowing into a schoolyard you know, full of kids. Yeah. <laughs> just no, no regard for the, the hazardous qualities of all these chemicals. I, I've, Michael was telling me, too, he was, he was spraying something, I think it was zinc or some crazy thing. And he would see, you know, insects come up and just drop dead, like in the air, as he was spraying these chemicals on the bullseye. It's kind of crazy to think about. It's Mm -hmm. hard,
0: it's hardcore, you know, and if you want to, so like there is, like I definitely respect, you know, where you could make the statement, look, they're not looking at all of this stuff. And then I was the chemical applicator for Mr. Kimura for five of the six years I was there. So I was the one doing the spraying once a week for the entire time I was there. Uh, I was the first apprentice to ever wear a respirator doing so, which I thought was fucking insane. but you see his fish dying in his pond and dead lizards and birds and insects everywhere. And you're like, well, this, this can't be good, you know? So then it's like, how do you get away from it? And the only way to get away from it is to build up more resistant within the plant, which then references the fungi relationship and the symbiosis of mycorrhiza and, and the nutrition, how can the plant protect itself? Well, calcium availability, I would say the majority of bonsai in the world are calcium deficient. And Mm -hmm. and 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 uh, and there's a lot of information now scientifically that from my own experience that reinforces that. And it's just like, well, so do do you give a calcium
1: supplement to your plants?
0: Well, here's the problem. And this is where, you, you know, this is where this conversation becomes super complex. Because our water resources in North America, and I don't know what Australia, I don't know what South Africa, I don't know what Europe looks sure. like, but North America specifically, we do typically have a very high quantity of dissolved CO2 in our in our systems, which creates bicarbonate. So like I have a six point five, six point five, six point six pH of my well water. It's impeccable.
1: That's crazy. Uh, our
0: ours in Portland is like eight or eight five. Right, right. But here's the thing. 6.6 pH, but I have a very high amount of bicarbonates dissolved. So if you <laughs> tested my soil after I've watered it for a year with 6.6 pH, which everybody thinks is great, but a high amount of bicarbonates, the bicarbonates bind and take all of the calcium that is existing in the cation exchange sites on the soil particle surface, and they produce calcium carbonate, which is the, the white residue. Right, that we typically see that we reference as hard water. Well, hard water is a discussion of bicarbonate concentration, right? And so by way of the source of the water, even though the pH is right, the contents of the water gives me the same product as a water that would have a high pH. And and this never made sense to me. I didn't understand how I could be having nutrient deficiencies or abnormalities like this. Um, And ultimately... You know, there are products in the horticultural world. We deal with water molds, pythium and phytophthora in the Pacific Northwest. Well, yeah. the, the way that you treat pythium and phytophthora, if you have it, is you treat them with a drench of a fungicide and the water mold fungicides have a high metal, m- metal concentration, whether it's aliette and aluminum or whether it's subdue and whatever the active ingredient is. I believe it's copper in that, but I'm not sure, right? Well, when you start to load up aluminum, or copper or iron or manganese or boron or zinc in your soil system you don't change things. you don't ever get that out you don't yeah. ever get that out right that the because that also gets loaded into the plant's vascular system and i had a i had a rocky mountain juniper that i was worried had root rot and i treated with aliette and the tree died. Still the greatest loss I've experienced at Marai in terms of a quality tree. And I remember cutting the, the, the root in half just because it was dead. I was trying to autopsy it. Yeah. Um, and the vascular system was black. And oh I gosh. never knew why it was black. But, um, but I sent all the samples off to all these different labs and whatnot. And, um, and it turns out that it was the aluminum from the drench that was supposed to stop the root rot that had accumulated. Yeah. So anyways, just a lot of, just a lot of like, all of these are anecdotal things, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which makes it so tough, which
0: makes it super tough. Too many variables a lot, but, but I, but I, we, I am trying to understand enough to not overdo it, which means I have to go past the point of knowing enough, right. To be able to pull back to what is reasonable with the bones I practice.
1: Yeah, it was so interesting how you would say, Mr. Kimura, when there was a problem, would just go back to the fundamentals, you uh-huh. know, proper, you know, water monitoring of that plant, maybe tipping it up to get the excess water out, just really focusing on the fundamentals. And then, you know, that seems to overcome some challenges. I, I think fascinating.
0: Yeah, because we already are creating the unnatural environment that makes it too, it's too complex already. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you can so. simplify any aspect of this. Then you're probably <laughs> doing yourself a huge favor.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But.
0: Oh, yeah. uh, Andrew, we did it again. Almost two hours, my friend. I know, and we have so much more to say for next time. I know. What's the next one gonna be?
1: What do you think? I think we should. I think we should focus on something real specifically. I, I think, like, we should talk about maples, or I, don't I know, just it,
0: I want to know about maples. I do. I really do. I want to know about Japanese maples specifically because I think this is the, I think it's the most, um, I think it's the most uh, dogma centric deciduous tree, like all the misnomers.
1: Yeah, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. So yeah, let's talk about maples. Let's talk about Japanese maples next time.
0: I, I am into that. I am into that. And then as far as far as the flowering and fruiting discussion, you you feel pretty good with what we've discussed. You feel like we know no? <laughs> no,
1: there's there's just still more nuance that we could really dive deep in. And honestly, it's it's you know, let's keep talking in five, 10, 20 years and, and we'll we'll hopefully have some more answers. But I, I'm just starting to begin down this road with so many species. Cause I mean with with trees they act generally the same you know a maple a beech an elm they're they're generally very similar but a, a chinese quince versus a a winterberry versus a coralopsis these have very vast differences to me and so i think it's going to take you know but my problem now is i have you know several old plants uh so i have you know and one old coralopsis, one old ume one old winterberry so i want to grow you take cuttings of these and I want to grow, you know, batches of 20 or 30, and then I'm going to have a real, real firm grasp of, of what's going on. But I'm still just kind of beginning this, this cascade of of nuance and and all these different flowering fruiting species.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there is, you know, I'm Mirai got, obviously my obsession with bonsai and, and sort of inability to control that obsession has led me to have uh, too many trees yeah <laughs> but but and, and,
1: and i you know i know a it. I, it's a challenge we tell our students don't have too many trees and then and then we fill up our yards but, but
0: there is an advantage to this because you have to have that quantity to know you really right. do have to have that quantity to know it's a big game changer to be able to look at 20 of a species as opposed to two Exactly.
1: And, yeah, And so that's, I, I'm really excited, you know, circling back to Telperian, I, I was able to get 20, 20 Japanese maples from them this year. Um, I have maybe 10 trident maples. So I, I'm, I'm starting to get some big batches of plants and I'm really excited for the possibilities that those big batches will really kind of teach me. And, yeah. And, and, very then cool. Pass on to the students. So that'll be fun.
0: The bonsai world is ready for what you find out. I can tell you that. Yeah, people it's, are. People it's it's going to be a fun, fun ride. Yeah, people are pumped. The first podcast we did um, had such a, a positive response. I I think everybody is really excited for
1: you to get set up so you can start to rock. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I think Rakuyo Rakuyo is going to be a really really fun place. So it's it's really fun to to be welcome into the Portland community and into put down some roots here. So yeah. I, I can't wait to get going.
0: Yeah. Good for you, man. Well, I, I, uh, I wish you all the best with the continued build, stay safe and, and healthy with all this smoke and, uh, you know, appreciate all the effort you put in with Telperian. I think we're all, you know, pulling for Chris and Lisa and Roxy to, to, to recover in whatever way feels best for them, but, um, you know, nothing, nothing but positivity. And I really appreciate you being willing to come on and, and, and wrap again. Cause I thoroughly enjoy our
1: conversations. Yeah, I'm I'm already looking forward to the next one, Ryan. Likewise, likewise. Very good,
0: Andrew. All right, man, take care. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, see you next time. All right, man.